Section 41 of Volume 1C of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1C section 41 chapter 35 part 2 all these imprudences were remarked by somerset's enemies who resolved to take advantage of them lord st john president of the council the earls of warwick southampton and arundel with five members more met at ely house and assuming to themselves the whole power of the council began to act independently of the protector whom they represented as the author of every public grievance and misfortune they wrote letters to the chief nobility and gentry in england informing them of the present measures and requiring their assistance they sent for the mayor and aldermen of london and enjoined them to obey their orders without regard to any contrary orders which they might receive from the duke of somerset they laid the same injunctions on the lieutenant of the tower who expressed his resolution to comply with them next day rich lord chancellor the marquis of northampton the earl of shrewsbury sir thomas cheney sir john gage sir ralph sadler and chief justice montague joined the malcontent councillors and everything bore a bad aspect for the protector's authority secretary peter whom he had sent to treat with the council rather chose to remain with them the common council of the city being applied to declared with one voice their approbation of the new measures and their resolution of supporting them as soon as the protector heard of the defection of the councillors, he removed the king from Hampton Court, where he then resided, to the castle of Windsor, and arming his friends and servants, seemed resolute to defend himself against all his enemies. But finding that no man of rank except Cranmer and Paget adhered to him, that the people did not rise at his summons, that the city and tower had declared against him, that even his best friends had deserted him he lost all hopes of success and began to apply to his enemies for pardon and forgiveness no sooner was this despondency known than lord russell sir john baker speaker of the house of commons and three councillors more who had hitherto remained neuters joined the party of warwick whom every one now regarded as master the council informed the public by proclamation of their actions and intentions they wrote to the princesses mary and elizabeth to the same purpose and they made addresses to the king in which after the humblest protestations of duty and submission they informed him that they were the council appointed by his father for the government of the kingdom during his minority that they had chosen the duke of somerset protector under the express condition that he should guide himself by their advice and direction 
that he had usurped the whole authority, and had neglected, and even in everything opposed their counsel, that he had proceeded to that height of presumption as to levy forces against them, and place these forces about his majesty's person. They therefore begged that they might be admitted to his royal presence, that he would be pleased to restore them to his confidence, and that Somerset's servants might be dismissed. Their request was complied with. Somerset capitulated only for gentle treatment which was promised him. He was, however, sent to the tower with some of his friends and partisans, among whom was Cecil, afterwards so much distinguished. Articles of indictment were exhibited against him, of which the chief, at least the best founded, is his usurpation of the government, and his taking into his own hands the whole administration of affairs. The clause of his patent, which invested him with absolute power, unlimited by any law, was never objected to him, plainly because, according to the sentiments of those times, that power was in some degree involved in the very idea of regal authority. The Catholics were extremely elated with this revolution, and as they had ascribed all the late innovations to Somerset's authority, they hoped that his fall would prepare the way for the return of the ancient religion. But Warwick, who now bore chief sway in the council, was entirely indifferent with regard to all these points of controversy, and finding that the principles of the Reformation had sunk deeper into Edward's mind than to be easily eradicated, he was determined to comply with the young prince's inclinations, and not to hazard his new acquired power by any dangerous enterprise. He took care very early to express his intentions of supporting the Reformation, and he threw such discouragements on Southampton, who stood at the head of the Romanists, and whom he considered as a dangerous rival, that the high-spirited nobleman retired from the council, and soon after died from vexation and disappointment. The other councillors who had concurred in the revolution received their reward by promotions and new honours. Russell was created Earl of Bedford. The Marquis of Northampton obtained the office of Great Chamberlain, and Lord Wentworth, besides the office of Chamberlain of the Household, got two large manors, Stepney and Hackney, which were torn from the Sea of London. A Council of Regency was formed, not that which Henry's will had appointed for the government of the kingdom, and which, being founded on an act of Parliament, was the only legal one, but composed chiefly of members who had formerly been appointed by Somerset, and who derived their seat from an authority which was now declared usurped and illegal. But such niceties were, during that age, little understood, and still less regarded, in England. A session of Parliament was held, and as it was the usual maxim of that assembly to acquiesce in every administration which was established, the council dreaded no opposition from that quarter, and had more reason to look for a corroboration of their authority. Somerset had been prevailed upon to confess. On his knees, 
before the council all the articles of charge against him, and he imputed these misdemeanours to his own rashness, folly, and indiscretion, not to any malignity of intention. He even subscribed this confession, and the paper was given in to Parliament, who, after sending a committee to examine him, and hear him acknowledge it to be genuine, passed a vote by which they deprived him of all his offices, and fined him two thousand pounds a year in land. Lord St. John was created treasurer in his place, and Warwick Earl Marshal. The prosecution against him was carried no further. His fine was remitted by the king. He recovered his liberty, and Warwick, thinking that he was now sufficiently humbled, and that his authority was much lessened by his late tame and abject behaviour, readmitted him into the council, and even agreed to an alliance between their families by the marriage of his own son, Lord Dudley, with the Lady Jane Seymour, daughter of Somerset. During this session, a severe law was passed against riots. It was enacted that if any to the number of twelve persons should meet together for any matter of state, and being required by a lawful magistrate should not disperse, it should be treason, and if any broke hedges or violently pulled up pales about enclosures without lawful authority, it should be felony. Any attempt to kill a privy councillor was subjected to the same penalty. The bishops had made an application, complaining that they were deprived of all their power by the encroachments of the civil courts, and the present suspension of the canon law, that they could summon no offender before them, punish no vice, or exert the discipline of the church, from which diminution of their authority they pretended immorality had everywhere received great encouragement and increase. The design of some was to revive the penitentiary rules of the primitive church, but others thought that such an authority committed to the bishops would prove more oppressive than confession, penance, and all the clerical inventions of the Romish superstition. The Parliament for the present contented themselves with empowering the king to appoint thirty-two commissioners to compile a body of canon laws, which were to be valid though never ratified by Parliament. Such implicit trust did they repose in the Crown, without reflecting that all their liberties and properties might be affected by these canons. The King did not live to affix the royal sanction to the new canons. Sir John Sharrington, whose crimes and malversations had appeared so egregious at the condemnation of Lord Seymour, obtained from Parliament a reversal of his attainder. This man sought favour with the more zealous reformers, and Bishop Latimer affirmed that though formerly he had been a most notorious knave, he was now so penitent that he had become a very honest man. When Warwick and the Council of Regency began to exercise their power, they found themselves involved in the same difficulties that had embarrassed the protector. The wars with France and Scotland could not be supported by an exhausted exchequer, seemed dangerous to a divided nation, 
and were now acknowledged not to have any object which even the greatest and most uninterrupted success could attain. The project of peace entertained by Somerset had served them as a pretense for clamour against his administration. Yet after sending Sir Thomas Cheney to the Emperor, and making again a fruitless effort to engage him in the protection of Boulogne, they found themselves obliged to listen to the advances which Henry made them by the canal of Guidotti, a Florentine merchant. The Earl of Bedford, Sir John Mason, Paget, and Peter were sent over to Boulogne with full powers to negotiate. The French king absolutely refused to pay the two millions of crowns which his predecessor had acknowledged to be due to the crown of England as arrears of pensions, and said that he never would consent to render himself tributary to any prince. But he offered a sum for the immediate restitution of Boulogne, and four hundred thousand crowns were at last agreed on, one half to be paid immediately, the other in August following. Six hostages were given for the performance of this article. Scotland was comprehended in the treaty, the English stipulated to restore Lauder and Dunglas, and to demolish the fortress of Roxburgh and Eymouth. No sooner was peace concluded with France than a project was entertained of a close alliance with that kingdom, and Henry willingly embraced a proposal so suitable to both his interests and his inclinations. An agreement some time after was formed for a marriage between Edward and Elizabeth, a daughter of France, and all the articles were, after a little negotiation, fully settled. But this project never took effect. The intention of marrying the king to a daughter of Henry, a violent persecutor of the Protestants, was nowise acceptable to that party in England but in all other respects the council was steady in promoting the reformation and in enforcing the laws against the romanists several prelates were still addicted to that communion and though they made some compliances in order to save their bishoprics they retarded as much as they safely could the execution of the new laws and gave countenance to such incumbents as were negligent or refractory a resolution was therefore taken to seek pretences for depriving those prelates, and the execution of this intention was the more easy, as they had all of them been obliged to take commissions, in which it was declared that they held their sees during the king's pleasures only. It was thought proper to begin with Gardiner, in order to strike a terror into the rest. The method of proceeding against him was violent, and had scarcely any colour of law or justice. Injunctions had been given him to inculcate in a sermon the duty of obedience to a king, even during his minority, and because he had neglected this topic, he had been thrown into prison, and had been detained there during two years without being accused of any crime except disobedience to this arbitrary command. The Duke of Somerset, Secretary Peter, and some others of the council were now sent, in order to try his temper, 
and endeavour to find some grounds for depriving him. He professed to them his intention of conforming to the government, of supporting the king's laws, and of officiating by the new liturgy. This was not the disposition which they expected or desired. A new deputation was therefore sent, who carried him several articles to subscribe. He was required to acknowledge his former misbehaviour, and to confess the justice of his confinement. He was likewise to own that the king was supreme head of the church, that the power of making and dispensing with holy days was part of the prerogative, that the book of common prayer was a godly and commendable form, that the king was a complete sovereign in his minority, that the law of the six articles was justly repealed, and that the king had full authority to correct and reform what was amiss in ecclesiastical discipline, government, or doctrine. The bishop was willing to set his hand to all the articles except the first. He maintained his conduct to have been inoffensive, and declared that he would not own himself guilty of faults which he had never committed. The council, finding that he had gone to such lengths, were determined to prevent his full compliance by multiplying the difficulties upon him, and sending him new articles to subscribe. A list was selected of such points as they thought would be the hardest of digestion, and, not content with this rigour, they also insisted on his submission and his acknowledgment of past errors. To make this subscription more mortifying, they demanded a promise that he would recommend and publish all these articles from the pulpit. But Gardiner, who saw that they intended either to ruin or dishonour him, or perhaps both, determined not to gratify his enemies by any further compliance. He still maintained his innocence, desired a fair trial, and refused to subscribe more articles till he should recover his liberty. For this pretended offence his bishopric was put under sequestration for three months, and as he then appeared no more compliant than before, a commission was appointed to try, or more properly speaking, to condemn him. The commissioners were the primate, the bishops of London, Eli and Lincoln, Secretary Peter, Sir James Hales, and some other lawyers. Gardiner objected to the legality of the commission, which was not founded on any statute or precedent, and he appealed from the commissioners to the king. His appeal was not regarded. Sentence was pronounced against him. He was deprived of his bishopric, and committed to close custody. His books and papers were seized, he was secluded from all company, and it was not allowed him either to send or receive any letters or messages. Gardiner, as well as the other prelates, had agreed to hold his office during the king's pleasure. But the council, unwilling to make use of a concession which had been so illegally and arbitrarily extorted, chose rather to employ some forms of justice a resolution which led them to commit still greater iniquities and severities. But the violence of the reformers did not stop there. Day, 
Bishop of Chichester, Heath of Worcester, and Voisy of Exeter were deprived of their bishoprics on pretence of disobedience. Even Kitchen of Landaff, Capon of Salisbury, and Sampson of Coventry, though they had complied in everything, yet not being supposed cordial in their obedience, were obliged to seek protection by sacrificing the most considerable revenues of their see to the rapacious courtiers. These plunderers neglected not even smaller profits. An order was issued by a council for purging the library at Westminster of all missals, legends, and other superstitious volumes, and delivering their garniture to Sir Anthony Orcher. Many of these books were plated with gold and silver, and curiously embossed, and this finery was probably the superstition that condemned them. Great havoc was likewise made on the libraries at Oxford. Books and manuscripts were destroyed without distinction. The volumes of divinity from the council books suffered for their rich binding. Those of literature were condemned as useless. Those of geometry and astronomy were supposed to contain nothing but necromancy. The university had not power to oppose these barbarous violences. They were in danger of losing their own revenues, and expected every moment to be swallowed up by the Earl of Warwick and his associates. Though everyone besides yielded to the authority of the council, the Lady Mary could never be brought to compliance and she still continued to adhere to the mass, and to reject the new liturgy. Her behaviour was, during some time, connived at, but at last her two chaplains, Mallet and Barclay, were thrown into prison, and remonstrances were made to the princess herself on account of her disobedience. The council wrote her a letter by which they endeavoured to make her change her sentiments, and to persuade her that her religious faith was very ill-grounded. They asked her what warrant there was in scripture for prayers in an unknown tongue, the use of images, or offering up the sacrament for the dead, and they desired her to peruse St. Austin and the other ancient doctors who would convince her of the errors of the Romish superstition and prove that it was founded merely on false miracles and lying stories. The Lady Mary remained obstinate against all this advice, and declared herself willing to endure death rather than relinquish her religion. She only feared, she said, that she was not worthy to suffer martyrdom in so holy a cause. And as for Protestant books, she thanked God that as she never had, so she hoped never to read any of them. Dreading further violence, she endeavoured to make an escape to her kinsman Charles, but her design was discovered and prevented. The emperor remonstrated in her behalf, and even threatened hostilities if liberty of conscience were refused her. But though the council, sensible that the kingdom was in no condition to support with honour such a war, was desirous to comply, they found great difficulty to overcome the scruples of the young king. 
he had been educated in such a violent abhorrence of the mass and other popish rites which he regarded as impious and idolatrous that he should participate he thought in the sin if he allowed its commission and when at last the importunity of cranmer ridley and poinet prevailed somewhat over his opposition he burst into tears lamenting his sister's obstinacy and bewailing his own hard fate that he must suffer her to continue in such an abominable mode of worship end of section forty one chapter thirty five part two